0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are thrilled to feature Jing Zhang, a renowned fashion journalist and consultant. Jing currently serves as the global editor-in-chief of Jing Daily, the leading publication on luxury and fashion trends in China. The health of the Chinese consumer has been hotly debated throughout 2023. Conflicting market signals have given oxygen to bulls and bears alike. On one hand, luxury spending is up. But pressures on the housing market have led to increased savings and less spending on large durables. So what's really going on and how can brands adapt? In this episode, Jing brings her expert insights to the table to shed light on the priorities of Chinese consumers in this new landscape. Our conversation touches on many topics, beginning with Jing's unexpected journey into fashion journalism. Jing then shares her assessment of Chinese consumer confidence and how consumer preferences have shifted. We also explore the rise of domestic beauty brands the gradual recovery of the tourism industry, and the impact of mental health on Chinese consumer trends. Jing offers her insights into the Chinese fashion industry, the repercussions of the pandemic, and the evolving nature of Chinese consumerism. This episode is a must-listen for anyone interested in understanding Chinese lifestyle and consumer trends. Enjoy.
1: A lot of the brands that have been able to really effectively communicate their strength and legacy, their strength and quality will win, you know, will win in this race. You know, now that the frenzy is kind of over and people are being more considered when it comes to luxury, I think those top tier brands who have been most effective at communicating that to the Chinese consumer and also localizing their brand values and messaging to the Chinese consumer effectively...
0: Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jing, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Can you start by telling the audience about your career as a fashion journalist and consultant and about the mission of Jing Daily?
1: Yeah, my career as a fashion journalist actually was quite accidental. I have a degree in psychology and then I did an MA in visual anthropology. So it wasn't a linear path at all, but I always um, enjoyed writing. So I was writing for a fashion magazine um, that I ended up working at and later editing called West East in Hong Kong. And it kind of went on from there. After that, I was a fashion editor at South China Morning Post. Um, In between then and now, I've just held various positions, part-time and full-time at um, different magazines, all in English, um, because I don't write in Chinese, but um, in the fashion, art, culture space in Asia. Um and I lived in Shanghai for four years in Hong Kong for about twelve or thirteen as an adult. Um but I hail from Guiyang in China <laughs> and I've lived most of my most of my life now actually in the UK.
0: There's a tinge of an accent, and obviously it's yes, a British accent. A <laughs> yeah, how how did that come yeah. about?
1: I moved to the UK when I was five years old actually with my parents, um, because my father was studying for his PhD in the uk so it was a very um i think at the time it was you know eighty nine eighty eight, so it wasn't there weren't that many mainland chinese um students like him in the uk at all yeah
0: now where are you located that we're recording
1: you from today um i'm at my place in porto <laughs> so i just uh, i have a small little flat in portugal where i just go to relax get out of the big smoke <laughs>
0: Beautiful, beautiful. So, what is your read on Chinese consumer confidence in 2023?
1: Um, obviously, you know the end of um, the pandemic. Um, there was a you know there was a surge of, I guess, revenge spending. Um, but I think with the collapse of Evergrande and other macroeconomic factors that have been. Difficult for China this year, to say the least. I think the middle classes do feel um, stretched. You know, I think there is has been a severe lack of confidence, or um, for the first time in many Chinese consumers' lives, I think you know they're not sure that next year is going to be better than this year. I think that's the fundamental thing. Um, China's you know economic rise has been so rapid and historically unprecedented. Um, so I think some of the people have just been you know used to. Um, expecting last year, to, uh, next the next year to be better than last. I think this is the first time in some people's lives, certainly, that they don't have that assurance anymore. So I think certainly for some of the middle classes, there is a lot of worry. There is um, some hesitation. There is not that kind of um, boundless optimism of, of previous years pre-pandemic, I think. But I don't think it's completely doom and gloom as a lot of the media headlines paint it.
0: Who have been the winners and losers in the China luxury market in 2023? And what factors, in your opinion, have shaped their success or lack thereof?
1: Um, I think, honestly, the the winners and losers. I mean, I think, actually, a lot of the brands that have been able to kind of really effectively communicate their, like, strength and legacy, their strength and quality, um, will win, you know, will win in this race. I think, you know, now that the frenzy is kind of over and people are being more considered when it comes to luxury, I think those top tier brands who have been most effective at, at communicating that to the Chinese consumer and also localizing their kind of, uh, you know, brand values and messaging to the Chinese consumer effectively are the have emerged the winners, you know, the ones that have emerged the losers, which To be honest, happened. I think you know, started to happen even pre-pandemic. Um, with the people who failed to affect, um, failed to kind of localize effectively, um, and just thought that hey, I'm a big brand in the West. Um, I will just export everything I have into China, and it's done and dusted.
0: What about young consumers? What are they spending on now? And what are the major lifestyle trends driving their consumption?
1: I think young consumers. we did. We've done a couple of stories on this, um, and I think you know through social media platforms such as such as like Xiaohongshu, um, there have been some trends emerging, like a simplified life, self care and wellness, you know, um, mental as well as physical, and this kind of like hyper localization come up as consistently throughout twenty twenty three as uh, top trends for for China's you know China's young. Um, I do think there is, you know, the, you know, China's Gen Z, there's been a lot of talk about this, but they have unprecedented um, unemployment rates right now, right? <laughs> so much so, so, I think that the government has stopped counting, I think, since June of this year, but it's at 20% plus. So I think that is something that's very interesting and actually quite worrying. Um, there's definitely a, you know, rejection of the 996 lifestyle for many younger people in China. Whereas previous generations were very much accepting of, you know, to, to, to get to get ahead, you have to work hard and harder than anyone else, and you have to sacrifice your lifestyle in some way or other. I think that's changed with China's young today. I think they're far more aware of their own mental health. They're far more aware of, you know, just curating a lifestyle they like. It's not all about the rat race anymore.
0: The mental health aspect is really interesting to me. And as you mentioned, you know, you have a, a psychiatry degree, I believe.
1: Yeah, psychology. Yeah. <laughs> a
0: psychology. Yeah, thank you. I know that it's something new for China a little bit to delve that deep, to start talking about mental health. Can you speak a little bit to the growth of mental health awareness, especially in the young in China?
1: I think it's, I mean, I think the kind of consideration and the importance of mental health awareness does come with populations entering the middle classes, right? I think, you know, if you look at standard Maslow hierarchy of needs, you kind of have to have the basics of, you know, not being hungry, having food and shelter and and things like that before I think other needs can bubble to the surface, such as mental health relationships and more psychological needs, I would say. So I think if you look from a demographic perspective, you know, the Boston Consulting Group estimates that China's middle-class will reach 560 million people by 2030, which is a vast um, a vast number of people. So I think, you know, because of that, just sheer numbers of people entering the middle-class and, and not having to think so much about survival, you will get this increased concentration on relationships, on wellness, on, you know, physical and mental wellness. I think especially for the young, you know, younger generations always... I think rebel from what came before them, you know, so perhaps they've seen um, their parents or, you know, people 20 years older than them struggle from a lot of issues of mental health, um, you know, in their lifetimes, and they want to avoid the same kind of thing. Right. So I think, I think it's, you know, I think it is part of that. When I speak to people you know, young people in China, there is definitely much more um, awareness and acknowledgement and desire to kind of explore that side of things, that side of themselves, um, that side of different industries, the mental health industry, the wellness industry, um, yoga, meditation, um, spiritualism, you know, it's it's really, really um, booming right now. And, of course, actually, in the, lo- the last couple of years, you know, COVID has definitely had something to do with it. Being trapped at home during lockdowns, the kind of introspection that that brings also definitely has a lot to do with this. And it's, we are just seeing, I think, the beginnings of um, how this will actually manifest.
0: What is your assessment of the strength of domestic brands and designers in the beauty fashion space in China? Do Chinese consumers prefer domestic brands or styles? How have foreign brands responded to that?
1: I think people are always going to be fascinated by, you know, their local brands their local creatives. Like, of course, China does not have a mature, um, a very mature fashion, beauty and luxury markets, right? You know, nascent markets, quite, it's quite in early stages. Um, I wouldn't say that Chinese consumers on average prefer, you know, Chinese brands at all, but definitely they've made a huge inroads. I think, you know, you, you, you say like 10, 20 years ago, they would I would say everyone generally would have a huge preference for foreign brands. But I think now today, it really depends on the brand. It really depends on the sector. Um, I think for beauty, it's a very interesting sector because you look at the success of um, Japanese and Korean beauty brands in, in China, right? And it makes sense you know it's tested the r d is on asian skin it's um i think that has kind of contributed to the rise of chinese beauty brands proya floras you know there's a couple of brands that have really just in a very few short years made massive inroads with the kind of local consumer market and become real competitors to the Western brands, especially um, because, you know, perhaps the products are just uh, made, you know, made more for Asian skin and made Asian uh, climates. Um, I think that makes sense on a fashion sense. I would say y- yes, of course, because people really look to fashion designers and, but I, there isn't, there hasn't been a huge um, brand that can really compete with the likes of like Chanel and Louis Vuitton, for example, you know, I don't think that's going to come for some time, but of course, cool young designers have, um, a pretty good place in, you know, and a lot of fans, I think in, in Chinese consumers and fashion fans, uh, hearts, I think it's always nice to see the beginnings of this, um, industry kind of flourish. Right. Um, but I think I think COVID did actually put a spanner in the works with relation to that. And also like overseas and global interest on Chinese designers. I remember being in Shanghai in 2016, 17, 18, and there was so much, there was so much global interest, right. on the art and design young, especially of young designers in China, but that did die down, you know, after the pandemic. And I think it's creeping back up again, but it really hasn't hit, um, you know, it really hasn't hit the the kind of peak of previous years.
0: You're right. You mentioned the pandemic and how significantly it reduced the volume of tourism around the world. It obviously impacted outbound tourism from China and the amount of Chinese tourists potentially even going to Europe to spend. Was there a response from luxury brands in that regard, and how has tourist spending rebounded this year?
1: Um, I think for sure a lot of luxury brands, they were missing the income. I mean, Chinese pre-pandemic, Chinese tourists were the highest spenders per, I think, per head, right, um, globally. So I think, you know, the return, this revenge travel has not been as, the recovery has not been v shaped as many people hoped, you know, firstly. Um and it's actually hard, you know. Just visas, um, infrastructure—they're not back to pre-pandemic levels. So the kind of difficulty as a Chinese, you know, person going overseas is is uh, is higher now. So I think are more costly. So the brands are still kind of waiting for the return. One of my colleagues went to a Trip.com um, conference recently and said that they. Um, they predict that the kind of Chinese tourism levels will hit pre-pandemic numbers, I think, around mid-2024, so the middle of next year. That's a prediction by Trip.com. I'm not so sure. You know, it really depends on, yeah, flights are more expensive, getting visas is more cumbersome these days. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how that, when that will fully recover. And if it will look, actually, the recovery will look the same as things were before. I do think those that can travel do have a hunger after three years. Of course, it's very natural, um, but perhaps their spending priorities have changed. You know, I see more of an interest in experiential cultural immersion um, in travel and less in just shopping for things. You know, I do see that, you know, anecdotally from my friends who, 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 you know, travel from China, but I think also, the stats um, on a lot of like travel um, websites or booking uh, services show show a reflection of that too however I think because there are less people traveling and the people who are are kind of you have to be more inclined to do it because maybe the barriers are higher but they do they are spending on average per trip more than before
0: one thing that we know is luxury brands have invested heavily in e-commerce and they did so even more. St- heavily during the pandemic. Now, is that the future of luxury spend? Can it be the future of luxury spend? And would you say that the difference between online and offline is growing? Is offline still the main channel for luxury brands or can they win in online?
1: Um, I think it's, it's a super interesting question and I think it's different in different geographies, right? Um, you've lived in China, so you know how seamless, uh, offline <laughs> uh, online shopping is and, and what high saturation rates and it's all I done it. in a uh, yes. It's just, it's so smooth. So I think it will always be, um, and even luxury purchases, you know, as we can see, there was a time where people were still debating with brands were debating whether to go in Timor, you know? many years ago and now I don't think that's really much of a debate anymore apart from bars and very very high-end brands but so I think I think in China there's you know it's hard to speak for the whole country of course but there's what I see is two stories coming about the offline experience is super important but it means that because people can shop so seamlessly so easily so you know have great customer service online, they kind of demand more offline so you know if you're if you're a luxury brand or a store, to give them something that is really experiential. I mean, I'm talking like sound, smell, you know, as well as the visual uh, merchandising and the design of the store. Um, you know, something very premium and just a space where they can like really dream and purchase and feel immersed in the world of the brand will be really key. Because if you're just like, I need to buy an eyeliner because, you know, I've run out, so you can just honestly buy on Taba or wherever, Timor delivered to you within 20 hours. So you don't need to um, really, you know, leave the confines of your house, right? I think in the rest of the world, you know, that isn't the case, as you, as you know, and it's not quite as simple. Um, and, you know, direct-to-consumer could be through Amazon, could be through the website, the brand website could be through socials. And then someone looking on the brand website could be through newsletters going into your email. So it's, it's much more complex, I think, you know, in the West... There will be for luxury. I think, you know, people parting with that much money, thousands, you know, hundreds and thousands of pounds or dollars. I think the physical space is still going to be very important. Um, I think, you know, the differences in mall culture, of course, like um, versus, you know, street, more like historical streets and high street culture is quite quite different. Um, But I'm sure I think people are going to you know, as online shopping creeps up everywhere in the world, you know, just at different rates and different saturation rates, I'm sure people will actually just demand more of the offline, you know, because it's natural for humans to be lazy in some aspects, right? So if you're able to, you know, if you're able to just to access something through Amazon, um, to, to make me go to a bookshop or to go to a specific store to buy something, um, Unless it's on the way home, you know, I think if you're talking about luxury, the experience is kind of key.
0: Jing, you are a fascinating person to talk to. I have so many more questions and things I would love to talk to you about, but I know that you have to go. So we have to put a pin in this episode
1: today. (laughs) I'm afraid.
0: Maybe we'll be able to encourage you to come back for a second episode. I want to talk about switching costs um, and where that's at brand loyalty and how that's being developed or lost in these days so many more things to actually discuss but for now jing Zhang, global editor-in-chief of jing daily thank you very very much for coming on the show today
1: thank you so much todd and i'd love to come back and uh, actually also listen to more of your china story as well <laughs> super <laughs> fascinated you. to to yeah to hear what you you think
0: it was it was a ride i i I loved, loved, loved my time in China. Absolutely. For everybody listening on audio only, don't forget to go over to the WPIC YouTube channel and see our shorts and whatnot over there. A lot more information, a lot more in depth and a lot more on video. You can come and see Jing and I in video. For those of you watching on the video, don't forget we are available on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. So for now, for today, for Jing, for myself, for the whole team at The Negotiation, we bid you adieu and we will see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia.